Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Freddie DeBoer, a left-wing author, journalist, and popular Substack writer. He's also the author of the must-read new book, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement, that provides, in his words, quote, a sympathetic yet critical look at the social justice movement over the past decade. I'm grateful to speak with him about the movement's successes and failures, the role that it has played in our politics, and why he thinks the return to a class-based consciousness is ultimately key to better outcomes for progressives. Freddie, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Uh, Thanks for having me. You wrote in a recent Substack post in advance of the book's release that it is not about, quote, wokeness or other broad concepts of social liberalism. Instead, it's about American progressive social movements, particularly the civil unrest that engulfed the country in 2020, unquote. What did you mean and why was it important to set that out clearly? Talk about what the book is and isn't. Sure. So um, I have, for my entire adult life, been part of what I would call the activist left, um, uh, engaging in various forms in real world um, uh, organizing, uh, because I uh, believe strongly in sort of confronting politics from multiple dimensions and directions at once. Um, And it simply is the case that there is a big difference between um, people going up the streets and pressing for a particular um, kind of sense of social change um, as distinct from, you know, at an Ivy League university, if they have a controversy over the, you know, what the cafeteria is serving, or if there's a new language code passed down by the HR department in a Fortune 500 company, those are distinct things. Um, And I felt then necessary to to make that distinction because, um, People speak with a very limited palette politically. Um, so this is kind of a weird example, but a good example is uh, there's a movie called Candyman, which is a, a horror movie, a thriller um, slasher from uh, the 1990s, the early 1990s. It's also deeply political. Um, it's about um, a, a former slave and uh, it's about um how the cabrini green projects in chicago had been facing neglect etc it's also about how the the highway was intentionally used in chicago and in other places to divide black from white communities um and i really like the movie i love how political it is but every time i read about it online people say oh that movie's about gentrification um if there's one place in the world that i'm absolutely certain was not gentrified it was the Cabrini Green projects in the early 1990s. The thing is, they just don't have a vocabulary for talking about housing and race. 
that is not the language of uh, gentrification. And I think that it's important to be uh, clear about these things. So I'm, you know, I, I've done, um, I think this is my 15th podcast in 11 days at this point. Um, uh, and I'm going to do a lot more uh, in, in the months to come. Um, I had somebody on one of them said like, so you wrote a book about cancel culture. Um, I don't think, I'm not sure if the words cancel culture appear in the book at all. It just isn't what I'm attacking. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm looking at how uh, <clears throat> the sort of social justice movement in the, in the United States in the 21st century uh, is operating, what its goals are, what its tactics and organizational strategies are, and if it's working, and with particular interest in the 2020 social unrest. I promise we'll come to 2020 in a minute. But before we do, I want to stay on the topic of so-called wokeism, because you've written, in my mind, one of the definitive essays on the topic. In March 2023, you wrote, quote, it's absurd that so many people pretend not to know what woke means, and the problem could be easily solved if people who support woke politics would adopt a name for others to use. No to woke, no to identity politics, no to political correctness, fine. Pick something, unquote. Freddie, help our listeners understand how you've come to think of what it means to be woke. So I think woke is a catch-all term that's used to refer to uh, developments in what I would refer to as social liberalism um, in, let's say, the last 15 years. So since, certainly since the turn of the millennium, uh, but particularly in the in starting in the 2010s, really picked up steam, was a new approach to the way that social liberalism talked about structural uh, injustices such as racism, et cetera, uh, racism, uh, sexism, et cetera. Um, these uh, perspectives are deeply influenced uh, by work that comes out of humanities departments at elite universities. Um, I often think it's funny that uh, the humanities are sort of referred to as sort of ineffectual and, um, and not having any real world consequences when they defined a vocabulary that took over American institutions in the course of a decade or two. Um, these uh, approaches tend to center very much on talking about uh, structural problems, the structural nature of these problems. So looking at, for example, the problem of racism as fundamentally being a problem of racial inequality, meaning that there are structural forces in our society that uh, change the outcomes or separate the outcomes of black and white, et cetera. And that's the good part. The bad part is that it is married to a profoundly individualistic ethos of how you confront these pro these problems. So to me, um, the microaggression is kind of the platonic ideal of this form, sort of contemporary social justice, you know, quote unquote, woke approach to politics. The microaggression is the idea that you don't just act racist towards someone by saying the N-word, you ask racist towards someone by the way that you do or do not use eye contact, the you know, terminology that you might use that is on its face innocuous, but that other people can be offended by. It's the idea that um, in our day-to-day -day interactions, we have all manner of loaded sort of things that we do that perpetuate supposedly inequality. Um, Robin D'Angelo, who uh, is a woman, a, a white woman, who wrote the biggest bestseller of 2020, uh, White Fragility, is someone who has advance this theory of, of sort of racial uh, inequality where um, white people oppress black people when they interact with them and they do so in a way that's linguistic, that's social, and that's symbolic. Um, and that's, I think, um, uh, deeply uh, misguided because 
I think racism is in um, the racial wealth gap. I think racism is in, for example, that black children's environments tend to have significantly higher levels of lead and other contaminants than than white. And then finally, you would have to say that this is all married to a um, structural illiberalism. So an attempt not merely to defeat ideas that uh, are seen as being offensive, but to silence them preemptively, to use the powers of law, of administration, uh, uh, of any given institution to try to shut down uh, behavior that or, or talk that they see as offensive. Let me just take up that point as a final contextual question, Freddie, before we delve into the book. Part of your critique of so-called wokeism is the emphasis on the individual. And then, as you said, also its tendency to head in certain illiberal directions. In a profile in The New Statesman, you go some length to establish yourself as a liberal. Talk about how your own personal liberalism colors the way you think about the, the sort of limits of modern woke politics on the left. Yeah, so I should be careful to say I am a Marxist and a liberal, right? In, in the sense that liberalism is a word that unfortunately has um, very many different meanings um, depending on context. Um, <clears throat> today, if you announce yourself as a liberal in American society, you are likely saying that you are someone who is a Democrat who believes in <clears throat> a further left vision of uh, of American politics. You may very well be quite illiberal in your um, sort of views on on hate speech, uh, so-called, on uh, on speech codes at universities, et cetera, et cetera. When I establish myself as a liberal in that piece, I'm saying that I believe in the liberal ideals of individual freedom and the sort of guaranteeing of those ideals uh, by uh, society and by the state. So um, I complain about liberals of the other variety all the time. I am not a Kamala Harris liberal, but I am a liberal in the sense that I believe that um, <clears throat> the only way to get out of any of these problems is by arguing our way through them. And that in order to do so effectively, we need to have um, <clears throat> a certain degree of openness of debate and culture. Now, let's go back to the summer of 2020. I was in New York City. Things were pretty intense. The COVID death count was high. George Floyd protests were occurring across the United States and even outside its borders. It was a pretty fraught time. But it also represented a moment for possible institutional and policy change. Yet you believe that the outcomes from that moment were ultimately underwhelming. We'll come to that later, Freddie. But in the meantime, take us back to that time. What was going on in the world of left wing and progressive activism? What were the strategies and tactics such that they were to achieve change? Yeah, so I think that we have to sort of look, uh, you know, I, I take a, a fair amount of time to sort of do this in the book because I think it's important. But um, you have to understand all this in the, in the sort of uh, post-Obama, uh, post-Occupy Wall Street, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton um, sort of sweep of uh, what it meant to be a left-leaning person. So when I started writing professionally in 2008, um, it was still the case that like the, the furthest left voices that were prominent voices were sort of like technocratic liberals like Matt Iglesias or Ezra Klein. Like, like that was the left. If you talked about the left, you referring to people like that because um, actual socialists uh, with some exceptions, but in, in general have been pushed so far out of the, the conversation um, that uh, you couldn't get uh, a word in sort of into the national conversation. You were sort of arrived pre-mocked. You, you came sort of pre-ridiculed for those beliefs. Um, Obama gets into office um, for many people 
the election of a Barack Obama was a sort of life altering uh, emotional event. Um, the uh, George W. Bush, uh, who's by far the worst president of my lifetime, um, had had eight years of just uh, hellish uh, mistakes on every level of of policy that you could imagine. Um, it's been kind of lost because we have the uh, institutional and cultural memory of a goldfish. But George W. Bush's uh, administration was really, really bad. Barack Obama obviously was inspiring because he was the first like real viable black candidate for the presidency of the United States. Um, and he spoke a, a language of uh, hope and change. I mean, it's been uh, reported many times that he deliberately sort of has based his persona and his cadence on the civil rights leaders, the religious civil rights leaders um, of the 1960s who had a very sort of sweeping oratorical style. And then Obama got into office and very quickly people realized the limits of that sort of thing. So um, he, it turned out, was himself a very sort of technocratic sort of incrementalist kind of guy. He was not a revolutionary. Um, he was someone who was very invested in, in appearing to be the more uh, sort of uh, reasonable figure within the Republicans, not seeming to realize that being more reasonable doesn't get you anything in politics. He also um, was ex explicitly um, pushing more of a sort of austerity approach to the post-financial crisis um, uh, recession that we had. Um, it spoke often about needing to tighten our belts, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a great deal of unhappiness about that. Occupy Wall Street happens. Occupy didn't amount to much, but it was an indication that there was such a thing as a left of Obama left that was coalescing in the country. And it came together in 2016 when Barack Obama, excuse me, when uh, Bernie Sanders ran against Hillary Clinton and really surprised a lot of people with how viable he was. Um, there's a lot you could say about that race. I think it's really important that people understand that, like, Hillary Clinton was a uniquely unpopular politician in American politics. Um, she was arguably the the worst polling in terms of favorable and unfavorable um, <clears throat> presidential candidate ever. And with the only person who might uh, have outdone her being her opponent, Donald Trump. Um, <clears throat> uh, so Bernie's, uh, you know, what we can actually draw from the Bernie 2016 uh, primary campaign might be limited, but it did show like, look, there is a resurgence of people who want to do something very differently because you had a wave of young adults coming into the world whose context was the Great Recession, who had seen that the, the economy had been destroyed indisputably by the banking sector. I mean, nobody even pretended this time it was somebody else's fault. Nobody was even pretending, oh, it's those those union workers with their fat cat contracts. Everybody knew that it was the bankers. We had a long protracted recession with a terribly slack labor market for a long, long time. But then Bernie lost. And the way that Hillary Clinton defeated him, uh, I think, is sort of monumentally important for how the American left talked and continues to talk, which is um, she and her proxies accused Bernie and his followers of racism. Um, <clears throat> somewhat sexism, more racism. This is a historical curio, given that she's a white woman. But uh, as someone who was sort of in the trenches of arguing about Bernie and Hillary at the time, um, it was a reflexive thing for her, Hillary Clinton supporters, her proxies in the media, and to an extent herself to sort of say, well, Bernie's fans are motivated by racism and sexism. Um, and uh, I am um, 
well, a heartless creature who can't be hurt in that way. But lots of other people are not like me. For a ton of people, a lot of lefties and socialists, it was the first time they had ever been called racist or sexist in their lives. And they, it, it deeply, deeply scarred people. And I do think that that experience sort of set up and contributed to this environment where you have these abstruse academic theories coming into the language of the left. You have this focus on microaggression. You have this sense that like we, what we need to do to solve sexism and racism and homophobia, et cetera, is to just constantly ratchet the tension up. Just make everybody more and more tense and scared all the time. Uh, and then you destroy your enemies by calling them racist or sexist. And I think that, that deeply and, and directly contributed to sort of where we are now. It's a fascinating assessment. To what extent is that backstory responsible for the shift in the Sanders campaign kind of energy and focus from class in 2016 to, for lack of a better term, kind of wokeism in 2020? That, and that is to say, Sanders, who for a long time had defined his politics through a kind of traditional class-based lens, took on some of the memes of identity politics in the 2020 campaign. Yeah, so I think I think that that is absolutely something that happened, i.e., without getting specific, having some knowledge of the 2020 Bernie Sanders campaign behind the scenes. I, I, I'm under the um, I, I've been I've been told that um, people within that apparatus were saying I, I can't I can't emerge from this, you know, being part of the sexist and racist campaign again. Like, I can't I can't you know, I, I'm going to move on from this. Um, if Bernie wins, maybe I'll get a, a job in his administration. But if he doesn't win, then I have to go get a job someplace else. And I just, I can't, I can't do another, you know, year of going to war with people calling me sexist and racist. And I can't have that sort of association. I think Bernie himself personally was stung by it. Um, uh, I, it's important also to say though, that, you know, um, Bernie was also not running against one of the least popular politicians in the history of public polling, right? Like, like I, I think that obviously, for obvious reasons, Hillary people are sensitive to this point and don't want to hear it. But like, it's easy to overestimate what Bernie accomplished in 2016 because the alternative was so hated by so many people that, um, <clears throat> you know, it, I think that some people sort of over overlearned the lesson of 2016 in terms of how ready we are for a socialist. Yeah. To come back to the book's assessment of what happened in the context of the summer of 2020, one of its most fascinating insights is about the institutional or establishment dynamics, even within these seemingly grassroots movements. Talk about that, Freddie. How is something like Black Lives Matter still a relatively top-down organization. And how does that, in your view, affect its ability or the ability of other progressive organizations to affect change? Yeah, so um, I think maybe the chapter that um, is most was most important for me to put out into the world is the chapter on nonprofit organizations, because I think that they are a, a hugely influential uh, element within American politics. And I think the average American um, probably could not name a single major political nonprofit or politically oriented nonprofit. Um, but they they play an enormous role. Um, in Washington, they are often referred to as the groups, which means um, <clears throat> sort of interest groups that are sort of represented by and made up by 
um, nonprofit organizations um, <clears throat> of, of various tax statuses because um, there are rules on which different kinds of nonprofits can 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 do in terms of political campaigning um, based on their nonprofit status. But anyway, um, <clears throat> these organizations throw a ton of money at everything. They have lobbyists. They also just have the ear of uh, of the progressive uh, leadership in the Democratic Party. Um, I mean, that's look, this is true across the, the entire political system and spectrum. Some of these groups sort of on the right, of course, some of these groups are are described as conservative ink. So there's certainly a kind of similar dynamic on the right. I mean, on the right, you could look at something like APAC and the, the Israeli lobby, or um, you can look at the gun rights lobby, which has been, as everyone knows, extraordinarily successful. What's the problem with these groups? Well, for one thing, I mean, they are a nexus of power that is fundamentally non-democratic, right? In other words, they uh, are not beholden to voters in any direct way. Um, they campaign and they raise money uh, on promises that tend to be pretty broad and pretty vague. So um, a organization like Sunrise, which is one of the big environmental and global warming organizations, but which, like all of them, has become sort of this catch-all lefty organization. Um, you know, they raise money saying, don't you want to stop fight global warming? And so people give their, their money, but then the organization actually has to, like, be operating on all the sort of bits of major legislation. I mean, one of the things that happens in Washington, if you have a big bill, something that's not, you know, other than, like, the absolute most sort of tightly focused bills, um, a lot of these organizations feel like they have to sort of be involved because they want to stay relevant to the process. Okay. So one of the things I point out in the book is um, Planned Parenthood put out a defund the police statement in 2020. And you might say, what has that got to do with reproductive rights? <laughs> now, they can, of course, come up with some sort of tangentious sort of explanation about why that why that is. But the real reason is because they want to be seen as being in the fight. It's good for their fundraising if they weigh in on everything. And so everybody weighs in on everything all the time. And so you, know, you have real influence in these things um, because politicians don't want to get yelled at. Their staffers don't want to get yelled at. Um, and these people have a have a unusual level of access to these politicians, way more level of access than you or I have. Um, and then you have sort of who makes up these organizations. So the pipeline to working at an elite nonprofit in general, with I'm sure plenty of exceptions, but in general, is just the American meritocratic sort of pipeline. Meaning, in other words, you go to high school and you bust your ass like crazy to, in order to get into an insanely exclusive, you know, school. Very often in one of what they call like the Ivy Plus schools, so like the Ivy League schools and, you know, uh, Stanford and Duke, uh, et cetera, University of Chicago. Uh, but if not that, then schools that, you know, small liberal arts colleges like Amherst or Williams or or uh, Sarah Lawrence that let in like 15 percent of the applicants or whatever. This produces a certain kind of person, right? Like you, you have someone who is hyper educated. You have someone who's been enculturated into this sort of machine of um, uh, like appearing to be the right kind of person. Right. In other words, having the right attitudes, the right political opinions demonstrating, you know, that you're sort of culturally savvy and you're aware of things that are happening in, in the world and in, and in pop culture. Um, and you're just almost inevitably, right, someone who is uh, 
a lefty in the sense that you favor uh, the cultural and, and social positions of, of, of liberalism on issues like gender and sexuality and abortion and gun rights, et cetera. Um, and you are no doubt someone who, for example, believes in universal health care, right? But because of your life experience, because of the kinds of people who come up through this pipeline, you tend to be someone who is much closer to affluence than not. And so pol policies like the child tax credit are just not viscerally re real to you in the way that coming up through Sarah Lawrence makes race and gender viscerally real, real to you. So you just have unelected bodies that have a ton of influence um, who constrain what the vision of the sort of the American left is and who, you know, represent this kind of person who has infiltrated almost all institutions of American life and are sort of our unelected leadership class. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Well, as I'm sure you're aware, Canadian news organizations are facing a more uncertain future these days thanks to federal legislation requiring Google and Meta to pay for news. Big tech's threat to drop all news content in Canada could have a profound effect on many publishers. Some may well see their web traffic halved in the coming months. So what does this all mean for The Hub? Well, thankfully, as a donor-driven charity supported by individuals and foundations, The Hub is thriving. We're rolling out new series, adding new voices, and seeing record engagement across our platforms. The Hub will continue to innovate and thrive, regardless of the new legislation and whatever Google and Meta do. This is true independence. We treasure it, and maintaining it is our promise to you. If you value independent thinking on the big issues of the day, consider becoming a hub donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You mentioned defund the police, Freddie. Why don't you talk a bit about that as a, in some ways, a, a symbol of some of the issues that you were just outlining? Where did it come from? And in hindsight, what were its problems in your mind? Sure. So, I mean, the the first problem that you have to sort of hang on to fund the police is just pure confusion, right? Um, no one could agree what it was. No one would agree whether it was the demand or a demand or something that is just a distraction. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I have taken, seen a piece of sort of defund the police arguments, right? Uh, an essay or a podcast or something, I've written in response to that specific thing. And then people say, oh, nobody believes that, right? This is this is the constant frustration with talking about police abolition. There are people who very much believe in uh, police abolition. I've known people like that my whole life, right? Like, I, I, I grew, again, I grew up in a lefty activist uh, atmosphere. So, like, I, I've known people since way before Black Lives Matter, who wanted to immediately abolish the police and the prisons. Um, but people will always just sort of say, well, that's extreme, and it's extreme for in a way that's inconvenient for me as someone who's arguing with you right now. So I'm going to say no one actually thinks that and no one believes it. And then even within that sort of world, um, what does the defund the police mean? There's this term called sane washing, which is where Someone who's in your broad sort of political milieu will make a really extreme and kind of crazy claim or demand. 
you don't want to be seen to oppose that because you're not on that. You're on this guy's side or on this person's side. So you accept it, but you do so by changing what the person said until it sounds sane, right? So defund the police was the most sane washed thing I've ever heard of in my entire life, which is um, some people meant, you know, just really specifically actually police abolition. Now, like no police, we just close down the police departments. Prison abolition means we just, we just, we, we tear down the prisons and we let everybody go free. Angela Davis is a good example of someone who is a giant in lefty circles. She wrote a prison abolition book. She is absolutely 100% convinced that we could just end these things tomorrow. So when I hear that idea, I react to it and I take it seriously and I say that it's stupid and it won't work, right? Um, <clears throat> but other people say, oh, no, no, defund the police just means we're going to draw down police resources. We're going to uh, put the money elsewhere. We're going to uh, reappropriate police funds for things like mental health um, outreach, stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> so, number one, you can't have a demand where nobody knows what the demand is. Right. Like if the Voting Rights Act, which is the single most important piece of civil rights edu- uh, legislation in American history, because it made keeping black people from voting a federal crime, which helps to give black people the political muscle to get what they needed. If if you, some people had said, yeah, we want the federal the federal police, federal agents to. Uh, be in charge of making sure black people can vote. But some other people said, well, no, what we really want to do is just create an advisory board that sort of looks at the future of potentially, then you would not have had a demand and nothing would have happened. And that's what happened with defunded police. And then, of course, like there's the substance, which is um, it, it would just, I don't know how society would function. Uh, there's a lot of claims that are sort of uh, observably untrue about getting rid of the police uh, in Recent history, pretty recent history, like in the American frontier in the late 1800s, which is not that long ago at all in historical terms, we had settlements that had grown up before there was any organized police force there. Like the the show Deadwood sort of shows you one of these places. Um, And we have historical records of those places. They were not places where spontaneously we had a sort of, uh, you know, you know, brotherhood of, of among men and everybody got along. No, what happened in places like that was um, the most powerful people dominated the least powerful. And that's what happened, right? Um, or if you want a contemporary example, uh, in Hong Kong, because of a weird work of the sort of treaties between the English and the Chinese, there was this place called uh, Kowloon Walled City, which operated as its own independent entity for many years. It was under the jurisdiction of no government, right? And in many ways, it sort of was a functioning society and they had an economy. Um, But the way that law and order worked is the Chinese triad gangs ran it. Okay, so that's that's what happens when you don't have police is you just, you know, a warlord will run run the area. That's what defund the police is. So I'm not a big fan of of the idea. That's a good segue to a question about your assessment of progressive accomplishments in the past decade or two. A lot of conservatives, Freddie, would argue that they've been significant. Um, not only have we seen some expansion in, in the size and scope of government, including under the Biden administration, but as you said earlier, we've seen major developments on issues of identity, race, and sexuality. But you're not overwhelmed by these political se- successes. Why not? How have progressives failed to make as much progress as you'd like? 
Well, I mean, I, I think that literally constitutionally, I would be opposed to the idea of being satisfied politically, right? Um, I, it's, it's just foreign to my approach to politics. Like, I just think, like, unless I can look around in my society and say, everything seems moral here, I'm happy with everything, then I'm going to keep pressing. Um, look, yes, there have been some gains. Uh, it's hard to know how proud we should be of those gains because they've happened against the total intellectual collapse of American conservatism. So uh, I think that if you look at like Paul Ryan, who was Mitt Romney's running mate in 2012 and was the Speaker of the House, um, he re represented like a very coherent sort of form of conservative politics. It's a form of politics that I find kind of evil because it, it, it creates a ton of uh, uh, a human heartache by sort of ending programs and kicking people off of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid who desperately need those things. But it is like a coherent vision of politics. The problem is, is um, Paul Ryan was an actual like small government guy. And the average Republican voter is not a small government person, right? They are someone who um, likes the rhetoric of small government, but don't you dare touch their entitlements, right? Like it, it, you know, it comes up in polling over and over again. You have people who call themselves uh, conservatives who say that they want a small government, who say we should balance the uh, the budget. And then you say, OK, which of these would you cut? And you name like a ton of programs. And they say, I wouldn't cut any of them. And then you say, OK, how much taxes would you raise? And they say we wouldn't raise any taxes. So they're for small government, but not for ending any program. And they want a balanced budget and fiscal responsibility, but they don't want any uh, tax increases or spending cuts. Right. So Paul Ryan conservatism just wasn't that popular. And he always remained sort of an alien sort of figure within the uh, Republican base. He was not a beloved figure. He was loved by sort of conservative wonk types in the conservative media um, who they do love is Donald Trump. Right. Because Trump's, you know, fundamental political identity is I will crush your enemies. And uh, what American conservatives and look, I'm friends with uh, several conservatives. A lot of them are really smart. I think there's people out there who write really intelligent things from a conservative perspective as a movement. Right. There just is no coherent actual political identity to American conservatism anymore. One of the things that's happened in the last few years that I don't think I would have ever seen happen is I would argue that um, Christianity has sort of ceased to be the sort of moral backbone of of American conservatism. So that, so that for, you know, if you look at George W. Bush, um, <clears throat> whenever he got in trouble in any speech, whenever he was in over his head, he would start invoking God. Right. Because because. That was the through line of American conservatism going back to Barry Goldwater. Um, Donald Trump barely pretends to be a Christian. He's the most sort of impious person I've ever seen in my life. And the candidates at this debate are not talking about like evangelicals and stuff like that. So when you say like, hasn't the American left gotten a lot accomplished? There are definitely things that I like. Biden could be a lot worse. Right? I've said it on several occasions. There's tons of things I don't like about Biden. Biden. He could also be a lot, a lot worse. I've been impressed by how aggressively he's been working to expand the role of government uh, in his three years, or however long it's been. But it's kind of easy to pick up some victories when your opponent just doesn't know what they're doing and when their champion has been indicted multiple times and is a 
barely coherent reality, you know, game show host. And so the question that every left-leaning American person needs to ask himself is, what if a, a Ronald Reagan walked out onto the stage, right? I think we'd get fucking trounced. Are you, I mean, you know, no one will be talking about running an 80-plus-year-old man with a 40% approval rating out for 2024 if he had a real opponent. And so everything takes place in that context. You call yourself a, quote, class-first leftist. What does that mean? And how would a class-first left-wing politics differ from the predominant politics on the left today? Sure. So to be class-first means that the organizing principle of politics is by reaching out to people based on shared economic need. So real, real simple. The way that you practice politics, so not as much about policy, although of course it informs policy, but the political element of your platform is derived from looking at people and saying, hey, look, you over here, you're very different from this person over here. But guess what? You're both struggling to pay the rent. You have something in common cause with each other. We can devise programs that can help you both. And if you both vote together, then we become stronger and we can get things for you. Hey, you over here, let's say uh, a college-educated black voter uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, and you over here, laid-off iron worker in uh, uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Culturally, there might be a great divide between you. But guess what? Um, Both of you are uh, struggling to be able to pay your health insurance premiums. We've got programs that will make that cheaper and easier for you. We'll ensure that when you uh, retire, Social Security will still be there waiting for you. We'll ensure that when you retire, Medicare will be robust and we're going to force doctors to take it and we're going to make sure that our payments are strong enough. So you, you make an appeal to people and saying like the pocketbook is how you can sort of organize politics. Where people get this wrong is they think saying that being class first means that you don't care about race or that you don't care about gender or you don't care about homophobia. It's not at all true, right? The point is the way you get people to form a coalition that's large enough to do something about racism, to do something about homophobia, to do something about sexism. The way you build that coalition is by appealing to their economic interests, because in poll after poll, research study after research study and just common sense for 100 plus years. Right. People base vote based first on their economic and financial situation and who they perceive is going to do the most to sort of fix those things. So the child, child tax credit, um, which I think should be on the lips of every progressive person in the country, right? We had it for one year because of COVID era largesse, right? Um, <clears throat> it is a program that puts cash money into the pockets of uh, uh, families with children who earn a below a certain amount. Um, and it had an immediate and dramatic impact on child poverty in, the, in this country. And because of how poverty is distributed, it had a particularly dramatic effect on black poverty, black child poverty. That is a perfect program for the kind of thing that I'm talking about, because it is universal, meaning that we can say to everyone who's poor and got kids, hey, we're going to help you pay the bills and take care of your kid. But it also has a undeniably anti-racist effect, because even if it does not specifically target black people, it helps them disproportionately because of the rate of black poverty. And that's class first politics. Let's stay on this point for a minute, Freddie. You write in the book that there's been a, quote, 
drift from the material in the concrete to the immaterial and symbolic, unquote. We've already discussed this a bit, but expand on your thoughts on the role of affluent white progressives in pushing modern left-wing activism from this focus on class that we've been talking about to one on identity. Yeah, I mean, here's the issue, right? It is undeniable that the Democratic Party has become um, a rich, richer party than it was 25 or 50 years ago. It's also um, just massively uh, more highly educated than it was 50 uh, years ago. Um, for a long time, college uh, completion uh, was associated with being a Republican because people who went to college made more money. And uh, traditionally, uh, people who made more money voted for Republicans. Around 2000, or the year 2000, you have this flip where, uh, and this is gradual, I just need the point where, where it starts to, to shift in the other direction. You have a movement in the latter couple decades of the 20th century where college-educated people start to vote more and more for Democrats and less and less for Republicans. At around 2000, you meet at about the sort of evening point out. And then from there on, um, Democrats take a dramatic edge in college-educated voters. Now, most college-educated voters uh, went to schools that are not at all competitive. So uh, I think a big misconception uh, among a lot of people uh, is that they think that of college, they think of like getting into an elite school. Um, most American high school students who apply to college never even apply to a single school that um, rejects more students than it accepts. Okay, So it's rare even it's rare even to apply to those schools, let alone to get into them. Um, however, liberalism has this sort of priest case, right? This priest class of people who are the movers and shakers of left of center opinion. They are at universities. So they are in, uh, you know, uh, elite university education and cultural studies and English and history departments. They're in, uh, the staffs of the major parties and of their, uh, uh, representatives. So, uh, even though there is within the Democratic Party, there is a sort of uh, gradient of more to more sort of lefty to less lefty people within our, our representatives in, in Congress. Right. Um, the, the people who work for those representatives in the House or the Senate are almost always far to the left of where the party is as a whole. So even the people who tend to work for the more uh, conservative Democrats tend to be pretty strongly left-leaning relative to their candidate, relative to the person that they're working for. You have the uh, the media, which, uh, you know, media, quote-unquote, bias is a long conversation, but it's certainly the case that the overwhelming majority of people who work at places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the Boston Globe, the LA Times, uh, the, uh, uh, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, et cetera, the overwhelming majority of those people vote, uh, voted for uh, Obama and then Clinton and then Biden, right? Like, that's just like, that's just how it is, right? So you just, you have this class of people who are overwhelmingly pulled from this rare track of applying to the most highly uh, selective schools. Um, and the people who apply to and get into the highly selective schools genuinely are more affluent. Um, I quote some of this data in the book, but we know that um, people who are in, for example, the newsrooms of the most prestigious uh, newspapers um, are not coming from median income families. Most of them are coming from upper income families. When you're in that milieu, it's just easy to forget about the child tax credit. And it's easy to think about, okay, 
when I was at Yale, I took a great sort of seminar in race, and I learned all about the, the, the concept of misogyny noir, which is like misogyny against black women specifically. And um, I want to impress the people around me. I want to show everybody what a great ally I am. I want to um, be the smartest kid in class. So I'm going to use that and I'm going to fixate on that. And I'm going to take, I'm going to look at like a show that everybody loves and I'm going to tell you why it's racist, right? Which is like a whole genre of, in our in our sort of media economy now, which is find a thing that everybody loves and call it racist. Um, that sort of thing just becomes sort of socially and professionally incentivized in a way that's sort of really focusing on stuff that never really applied to you because you were born let's just say affluent, um, it, it becomes really hard to sort of keep an eye on class first. Freddie, you, you've been so generous with your time. I just have a few more questions for you. You took on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in a must-read article for New York Magazine in July as symptomatic of some of the issues that we've been discussing. What strikes me most about her is that while she's arguably one of the most resolutely progressive legislators in the U.S. Congress, she's still not in favor of raising taxes on households below something like 400000 in income. So even she is reluctant to make the full-throated case for a larger yet properly funded government. What's behind that? Is it just a worry about Republican attacks or is it donor politics? And whatever it is, how much does the willingness to make the case for higher taxes on a larger share of the population stand in the way of progressive goals? Yeah. So, I mean, look, I, I, I would argue that this is kind of like uh, like the um, real pain point for uh, liberal people, progressive people, for Democrats uh, moving forward, is that our definition of who is rich um, is not large enough and that it has to include more people. Um, in my first book, uh, you know, I, I joined with those who say that, like, look, like, yes, the 99 percent versus the 1 percent is important. But the real divide is between the, the bottom 80 percent and the top 20 percent. <laughs> I myself reside in the top 20 percent now, for the record. Um, uh, I think that it is donor politics. I think that, that you know, people like AOC and look, she's hardly alone in this in Congress. So I'm not hanging this on her specifically, but um you should get a ton of donations from people who make, you know, a hundred to four hundred thousand dollars, right? Like they're sort of the 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 upper middle to lower upper class, you know, um, this affluent class that is nevertheless not what we might call rich rich. They they make a lot of donations. They're very influential in, among the um, <clears throat> uh, nonprofit groups that I've been talking about. But I also think that, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's number one. It's just a, a fight that they don't want to pick, right? Like. They can't get those tax raises right now anyway. So why put the idea into the world if it's going to get you blowback? Um, but also, you know, AOC goes to the um, uh, Met Gala ball now, right? Like she, like she just she just runs with a higher income crowd. And so her her vision of what is rich has probably changed. If, if you're someone who like is on a first name basis with Beyonce, as I believe she is, right? Um, I'm sure someone who makes $350,000 does seem like, oh, it's middle class to you. Um, but the reality is like, look, you know, we've seen this sort of runaway inflation, which we finally sort of seem to have got put a, uh, a stopper on. Um, it remains the case that like there are legitimate disagreements about how much of government actually has to be funded. Right. But like uh, the United States is in a unique uh position as the world's hegemon, as the sort of the currency of default uh, with the dollar of the currency that that oil is traded based on. 
um, that we have such an, an immense country that's so economically powerful that deficits just don't matter that much. However, um, sooner or later, right, it would be best for liberalism, for Democrats, for people in the media to figure out the fact that um, people who make uh, $140,000 a year are making twice the median household income in this country. And if the idea is that they should never be eligible for having their taxes raised for, the, for that reason, then yes, I think that does foreclose on a lot of progressive possibility. And it's a, it's a mistake. An ultimate question. I've read that you believe that a publisher wouldn't have touched the book in 2021. Why? And what's changed? What might it tell us that it was published in 2023? I think the original thing that I said was that this publisher wouldn't have given me this dollar figure uh, at this. Could I have gotten this book published in 2021? Sure. I could have gone to a small imprint uh, that wouldn't have any ability to promote it to the degree that I'm an interester has, and they would have given me five grand for the advance. Um, but in terms of putting out in 2021, a big ticket book from the second biggest publishing house in the world um, that has an ex as its explicit purpose, critiquing and criticizing along, you know, sympathetically, but uh, critiquing and criticizing uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. I just think it, we were not ready for that in 2021. Um, <clears throat> look like uh, there were repeated scandals uh, following sort of George Floyd's death and everything that happened about uh, employees uh, at publishing houses not wanting to participate in the production of conservative books. Um, and that just sort of petered out over time. So, yeah, I, th I think that my assessment there is accurate. It is kind of remarkable. I mean, part of why I wanted to write the book is just um, everybody was so wound up. I mean, to such an incredible degree. So everybody was scared for a long time and nobody was saying anything. And then it all just seemed to sort of evaporate in the night. And now people can barely remember what it was like afterwards. That's a good segue to my final question. Let's wrap up by having you paint a picture of a different and better progressive politics. What do you think still has to change and what would be the benefits from following your vision? I mean, the first thing that would have to happen is that you would have to sit, get real and say, look, 70% of the American electorate is white. Okay. Despite the constant insistence that the demographics are going to just make this a permanently blue nation. The guys who wrote the book that popularized that theory have now repudiated it. Okay. Um, also, not only is 70% of the American electorate white, uh, <clears throat> only 59% of the population is, but 70% of the electorate is white. Um, <clears throat> the way that our uh, Senate works, and to a lesser extent, the Electoral College, means that um, <clears throat> white people have a dramatically disproportionate amounts, like white rural voters have dramatically disproportionate amounts of power within the system. There are all number of people who have made some version of saying, well, we just want to, we just, those, those voters who went to Trump, you know, there's millions of voters who voted for Barack Obama twice and then voted for Trump, millions of them, right? And people want to say, well, they're just racists and we need to wash our hands of them. Um, there's no doubt that there are incorrigible racists within Trump's coalition that will never reach. I don't want to reach out to them. But if you're just saying, well, we're just not going to reach out to try to win Ohio anymore, if we're just going to declare Florida to be a total loss, right? If we're going to make those decisions, you're just saying you don't want to win, right? What you can do is you can say, hey, look, I'd love it if everybody would come together across races and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But that's not probably not going to happen in the short term. What we can do is say, hey, you guy from 
Ohio, voter from Ohio, voter voter from uh, from Florida, right? Voter from Texas. Uh, you guys are in states that are you know looking red, but that might potentially be flipped. Um, <clears throat> you don't have to love everybody in New York's coastal cities. Uh, they don't have to love you back, right? But you share th- something in common, which is you are losers uh, in our economic game. Okay, you are the losers, and the winners are not like latte swilling liberals who are putting their foot on on your neck. They're just the masters of the universe who own everything. We can come together and form a coalition to be able to implement uh, progressive uh, politics. If you look at the labor movement of the 20th century, it scored incredible victories in the first half of the 20th century. It maintained some of those victories for a long time following that prior to deindustrialization. Look at the UAW, the Auto Workers Union, um, very large union, very diverse. It was not at all the case that everyone within that union, like white and black, were living without tension. Okay, um, some people got along great, and sometimes there were serious racial tensions within the union. There was factions within the union that are based on race. There were a lot of arguments and fights that are based on race. But when it came time to negotiate with the big automakers, right, they set those issues aside and they said, we share the same interests. So let's improve our own economic well-being together. And if we do that, maybe we can get to a world where black people are in so much of a better economic position that they don't have to worry anymore about the idiots out there who don't like them. It's a great way to wrap up the conversation. The book is How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. Freddie DeBoer, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Fred. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Thank you.